I have a very special guest for you today. I was on his LinkedIn profile, just looking at some of the comments people say about him, and in reading them, I was just flummoxed. Here's a selection. If you want to make real change in your organization or your own role, Michael is your man. He's amazing at getting to the heart of problems and searching out solutions with you that work. Michael's assisted our management team in ways that are quite profound. Through his coaching and workshops, Michael was able to quickly get to the heart of our struggles and opened our eyes to where we needed to focus. Here's another one. Michael is a true professional, understands people and is an expert at facilitation. I can honestly say that Michael has been one of the most effective influences in my entire, entire professional career. Here's a third one. Michael's able to see the bigger picture and at the same time direct laser focus at seeing the root cause of a problem and helping build a solution to fix it. Michael Sahoda, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a real pleasure. Yeah. My challenge with all of that, Michael, was that that was just a tiny selection. I could have gotten so much more. Uh, you've obviously done a lot of fantastic work to, to deserve it. Uh, but maybe you could start telling me a little bit about where you grew up, what that was like. Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question. So, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. My my father uh, was an academic. He actually had two PhDs and taught as a professor in university. Uh, he's from, from grew up in a small rural village in India. So he came from a very unique background, and my mother came from from Germany. Uh, so you know, grew up in post war Germany and. And, and so, uh, you know, they were really this odd couple parents. And, you know, it was, it was very interesting. So, so growing up, it was, it was this really kind of this uh, fusion pot of different environments. And uh, as a child, it was very emotionally sensitive. And so uh, you really, for survival, my nervous system went through a lot of adaptations, a lot of armor, a lot of protection just for survival. Like, I, I had normal parents, very, very normal parents, kind of middle middle class upbringing, and really, uh, you know, you're kind of getting to the heart of it. I really, you know, when I exited that system and you know when I moved away to university, uh, ultimately for my master's degree, like I, I went, I, I I sort of found my refuge in mathematics, in science, in engineering, and I went through the, you know the hardest engineering program at the University of Toronto, and. You know, just and, and so I found my refuge and my ego in, in being the smartest guy in the room uh, and, and really just being, you know, allow my in, intelligence and brilliance to shine. And what that did, though, uh, is it set me up really, really well for my career in artificial intelligence. I've got published papers in the field. How do we get robots and at autonomous intelligent agents to work together in a complex environment? But that didn't set me up for life. It set me up to be the person who's kind of locked in the back room, who you slide the pizzas under the door and you tell them what, what complex problem they need to solve, but not to actually interact with other people, not to co-create with others, not to unlock success. So that's kind of like the like kind of my early, early beginnings. Mm. That's some jump thing going from the, that to the field you're in now. I'm curious you mentioned that you're a sensitive child. I'm curious what, what exactly that, that means and also, if you could give us some sense also of whether that was nature or nurture or a bit of both. Yeah, so we all, we all are unique. 
And our level of uh, sensitivity to uh, picking up information around us, picking up emotional field, everything, uh, you know, what was happening, our level of awareness, we all have different levels of sensitivity. And so what happens is that, you know, for, so for people who are very open and, you know, really good intuitive people are going to have like a lot of openness. Um, if we're in an environment which is nurturing, supportive, that openness, we can stay open, connected, aware of everything that's happening and, and just really be connected into the larger world, the people around us. But when the environment's not supportive, that's really damaging. So, so basically that, all that gets shut down. Right. And so so how did I discover all this? Well, I was in, in my you know, 40s and discovered, well, wait a second. I, my, my emotional system has lar- largely, sh- largely been shut down for my survival because right? our, our, our nervous systems are highly adaptive. And so whatever environment we're in, we're gonna, it's going to create whatever adaptations we need for survival. Like I'm here, you're here. So, yay, our nervous systems are successful. Right. We've survived. But here's the deal. Yeah. What we're looking when we look at our past, we say, well, wait a second, are all these adaptations that I needed for survival when I was young, are they serving me now? And then the answer we find as leaders is, wait a second, they're not serving me. They're not helping me. They're actually the baggage that's getting in the way of my success. Can you give me an example of something like that from your own life where you felt there was a response that might have been appropriate one stage in your life, but is no longer or was no longer serving you years later? Um, so w- when I say appropriate, I- I'm just meaning it's for survival, right? So I'll g- give you an example. It's not that it was useful. That it was useful for allowing me to survive, but it's not a useful life skill. So, for example, mm. uh, shutting down my emotional system. Right. So tuning down all emotions. So, and this is like what we teach people is, you know, successful business. You need to manage your emotions. Right. I mean, it's nonsense. We're, we're emotional beings and we need to know how to navigate and flow with that. So shutting down our emotions, repressing it just bottles up all that energy and it comes out in all sorts of weird ways. So it's really good for short term survival. But it's horrible, horrible for long-term relationships because we all have mirror neurons. We can all pick up the emotions that are going on in other people that's built into the, the human physiology and our wiring. So we can pick up when someone's got an emotional disturbance, whether they're aware of it or wh- whether it's you know, buried under all these layers of protection or not. Mm-hmm. So that will be like a very like, concrete example. Um, just really, I mean, this is really the whole thing. It's like trying to learn how to optimize for me, not we, not feeling safe enough, open enough, secure enough to focus on how do we all be successful versus how do I fight for my own survival, right? Mm. So it ties in very deeply with, uh, you know, our patterning, our egoic consciousness and so on. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tie the two together. So maybe sure, you could help sure. me by, if you gave me an example of, for example, if I was an observer, didn't know you or your family, and you said as a child, what would I have observed or seen in you that would lead me to conclude that you were a sensitive child? I'm trying to think of the behaviors. How how was that externalized? Yeah, so how was that externalized? So when I was young, it would be like uncontrolled rage to the point where I couldn't talk, uh, to emotional outbursts, to like, you know, just, you know, it's not like my parents were bad parents. I had normal parents... They love me. They did the best job they could. But we're talking about a non-personal, multi-generational pattern where they didn't have the skills to look after me because their parents didn't have the skills to look after them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So it's not that you know anyone's bad, anyone's wrong here. It's just that as a society, even now, people listen to this call, we do not have the skills needed to, for, to forget about helping our kids or the other people in our workplace or you know, the people we're relating to. We don't even have the skills to look after ourselves. Right, so we're okay. talking about like a, and we've gotten really, really deep on this one topic, but this is what's going yeah. on. And, and like, unless we actually understand this, how our emotions are taking us out, yeah. how we are getting yeah. in our own way, we can't unlock our yeah. own success. Yeah, I, 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 that's, and that's exactly what I want to do, Michael, is just give people a starting point to say, okay, what I'm sensing is a child who perhaps maybe in response to everyday situations might have overcompensated in terms of emotions. So for example, on something that, a child might get upset with, you might have gone super upset type of thing, right? Sure, sure. And you said that came from the environment and, and there's a, for whatever reason, it, it really doesn't matter. It's just, I'm trying to start with that and then get a sense of, you said it was much later in life that you discovered this. Yeah. What led you yeah. to that point where you were even looking in the first place? And what was that pivotal moment? Yeah. Uh... It, it all comes from wanting to be successful. And what happened is after I finished, after I finished, I will we'll continue to pick up the story. After uh, I realized I moved out of artificial intelligence research, uh, really amazing stuff, and started working as a software developer, I very early learned uh, that running software projects is just like running any other projects. And it's done in a very inhumane, barbaric, inefficient way. And I got involved with this thing called agile software development which is this people-centric way of working, right? And, you know, just change the process, et cetera, et cetera. But there's an underlying shift, an underlying shift we need as a human being to move from, you know, optimizing myself to optimizing and working in a team, working together for the collective success. And so I, I kept on doing that just as part of my work, and I had, you know, got, got promoted into more, more uh, leadership roles, manager, software development, vice president, R&D, and so on. And so I got, got an idea of what is it like to help an organization change from the inside. And I switched gears and started working as a, a, a trainer and a consultant helping organizations from the outside. And that's when I really hit this limit. Like I was always constantly trying to figure out like, how can I show up better? How can we function better? How can we do things better? But I really hit this limit where I, I saw that I kept on getting stuck helping organizations. And what I got stuck on was the consciousness, the mindset, the state of evolution of the most senior leader, whether it's dealing with a manager, a director, a CIO, the CEO, didn't matter who I was dealing with, their level of kind of maturity, their evolution, their consciousness, how humble, how curious they were, their level of kind of having a more evolved mindset was the limit. And then I thought, okay, wait, wait a second. So, so in order to help these organizations be successful, in order to help them unlock their people to create amazing environments, to create high performance, I need help these leaders evolve. That's the only way. And then, and then I look, this is my, my wake-up moment, really. I looked at myself Ooh. in the mirror. I said, well, Michael, can you help these leaders evolve? And then I, I stood in the, the painful truth, which was, well, no, Michael. You are a well-intentioned asshole. There's no way the way you're showing up, you can possibly help these leaders evolve. And that was like really my wake-up point where I could either give up on my, my dream of helping organizations be successful in a really profound way, or I could grow. Ooh. And that triggered a profound investment in my growth where now instead of being the person who should be locked in the back room solving really complex technical problems i'm now doing leadership training around the globe helping people understand how they can mm. unlock their leadership mm. unlock their mm. power and you know get out of their own way so they can mm. be successful 
Yeah, and I want to talk to you about that process in a moment. Uh, curious about, I just wanted, I guess, make sure I understood this correctly. What you're saying is when you look at these leaders and you're looking at how can I help them, your, your realization was that I can unless I can help myself. If I can't do it for me, then what hope do I have for doing it for somebody else? Fair. Yes. I'm also curious to know, um, in terms of, because you're uh, an expert in a AI, how much of your interest in people and trying to, I won't say fix them, but improve, prove us, um, comes from trying to analyze humanity through the lens of an AI expert, as in how do I codify humanity into artificial intelligence? How much of it was that, or how much, how much of it came from just a, a natural curiosity, a, 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 from a, a humanistic perspective? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think it comes much more from a from a really a, a, you know systems thinking analytical perspective, right? Like like my focus was how do we get complex autonomous robots to function together and solve really interesting problems? Like how do we even begin to do that? How do we even begin? And I'm and like my eyes just blown by the level of complexity. And you know I went really really deep into the human nervous system and the wiring of the brain and the neurons and how they connect together and how we can even see things. It's, it's just really incredible the the miracle of creation that allows us to function as human beings. So I went really really deep into what is this thing to be able to function and adapt. And and one one really fascinating thing that came out of this is, and we see this now in the news, it's like well. The level of requirement we have for machines is so much higher than human beings. Like we want machines that if they're not able to function safely, they shut themselves down. But look at human beings. We cause damage left, right, center, right in front of us all the time. We're not even aware of it, and there's no safeguards in place. It's just incredible that what we tolerate but, you know, you have a self-driving car that is, you know, 100 times safer than a human being. It's not okay, right? Because it's not 100% safe. But it's, it, the, the level we have of, of expecting machines is so much greater than what we look, when we look at ourselves where there's so much work to mm. do with ourselves. Mm. So let's talk about the work. Talk to me, first of all, just to frame it in sense of what are the typical problems that an, org that an organization would have that they'd invite you in to help them solve? Yeah, so let's just, so mo most organizations are in a, still in a very traditional mindset. Like, and it's a well-known problem. Um, you know, they're, they're still in this Tayloristic mindset. We have people at the top telling people what to do, creating strategic plans and so on. And we know, uh, you know, if we actually look at, well, what is the scale of human performance? There are many organizations have have astronomically higher performance, highly engaged people, et cetera, et cetera, right? So really, really, there's one aspect, which is how do I help these leaders wake up to realize that they're not doing their jobs in terms of being a steward of the organization and creating the performance that the organization is supposed to have, as well as they're not looking after the people, that in terms of the quality of their leadership, creating environment and caring for the people that that they're supposed to be looking after, they're not really doing their job very effectively. So it's, it's really kind of helping them, not with judgment, but with compassion, helping them wake up to understand that, wow, the scale of performance for human beings is so much greater than where we are now, and we are just at an early stage of our journey. So once they have that wake up, then it's like, well, what, how do we go on the journey? What's the l level of desire and motivation to make progress from where we are now to 
uh, a more humane environment, an environment that unlocks our people, where we really have passionate, engaged workers that take responsibility, that allow us to create extraordinary products for our customers, that allow us to have you know extraordinary survival in this you know we call it this VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. But to create that shift, that ability to be able to adapt with the changing world, the changing business demands, the changing customer needs, and so on, that requires an ability for people to adapt. And that's kind of the missing link is we kind of tie that external requirement back to what does that mean for people? And talk to me then about what gets in the way because we can, we can clearly see the end result. That's not the desired end result. It's not where we want it to be. And you mentioned the fact that people can't do their jobs. Sometimes I'm not even sure that they know what their jobs are in leadership, right? And But in terms of both Personal barriers like ego, but also organizational barriers. What do you see again and again that come up that 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 just get in the way of, of getting there? Yeah, so uh, we could say the status quo is a very powerful attractor. There's so the whole machinery of business as usual creates a very powerful lock on an organizational system to keep it trapped in its way of functioning. Right, because it functions that way, leaders in that environment are conditioned to a lower level of functioning, a lower level of consciousness to conform and operate within that paradigm where they act in impressive ways, they follow traditional business, they, they demotivate people. Um, so what does it take to break out of that? What it takes to break out of that is not to be a follower of your environment, but to be a leader. A leader is somebody who can rise above the challenges, the constraints around us to lead to a new way of functioning. And the tragedy that we see here is that a lot of people are do their best. They try to become they try to learn. They go to a master's of business administration. Masters of business administration. It's not a master's of business leadership. It's a master's of administration to learn people how to be an administrator and keep this bureaucracy, this hierarchy, this oppressive hierarchy in place. And we have no objection to the hierarchy. There's nothing wrong with the hierarchy. Hierarchy can be used to uplift people when you have leaders who are operating in an evolved mindset and an evolved consciousness. So really the whole of this journey is about helping uh, leaders become aware that the problems they see in the people, not being responsible, not being motivated, not asking for help, is because they're creating that environment that causes those people to show up that way. And that's the shift. Once we realize, wait a second, all the problems I'm seeing out there with my people are not problems with my people. I don't need to coach them. I need to change how I'm showing up. First of all, so I'm modeling the behavior I want. Second of all, so I'm taking actions to create an environment that will encourage them to show up the way that I want to. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to process this because it is, you're, we are dealing with complex systems. And you, when you spoke about MBAs, it wasn't, it wasn't in glowing terms. Now, I know you, the reference was very much, it was a mass, you know, it's, it's in administration. And therefore, what we're doing is we're creating an artificial framework that constrains rather than frees organizations. And I guess it's oh, the other bit that I took out of that is it's instructive of the, the, the bubble nature of the colleges that continue to offer MBAs, 
rather than innovate and, and, and identify what the organizations really need in terms of creative thinking rather than constrained thinking. That's what I took from what you just said. Yeah, that be yeah, fair? absolutely. So I have no objection to MBA programs. Like if you're in a traditional mm -hmm. environment and you want to function well in that environment and you want to maintain that environment the way it's functioning, its current level of operation, which creates a lot of disengagement, a lot of human waste and so on, and low levels of productivity and inability to function in this volatile, complex business world, that's a great program. But if you actually want to create an environment with engaged, motivated people that builds amazing products that's ad adaptable and thrivable and survivable in today's world, that's a different requirement. It's a completely different requirement. As long as we make sure that we understand what we're doing for what purpose. Mm. Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. Um, you've worked with a lot of organizations and looking through LinkedIn, the number of people who have said that you've, you've helped create those aha moments for them. Take me to those uh, as an example of the kind of moments where you see people sit up and get that, that, that awakening moment that you see it in their eyes. What are the kind of things that cause that in your experience? Mm. Yeah, so the thing is, one of the things that we ask people to do is not to believe us. <laughs> when we're going through training, we say, please do not believe us. Your job is to question everything. Your job is to question your current beliefs and question what we're sharing here. All we're asking you to do is to be open. Is it possible what we're saying could be true? So we actually start our training courses with a, a technology we created called Unlearning, which helps people realize that the actual patterning, uh, this is actually this is really important for everyone listening now, the patterning of your brain is to protect your existing ideas. I'll repeat, the pattern of your brain is to protect all your ideas. All the ideas you have right now are an interlocking web of mutually supporting belief systems. Now what happens is, you know, so we're trapped in this web of believing business as usual is the right way to go and et cetera, et cetera. So when we start to introduce a foreign element, like maybe that's not so useful, the automatic reaction of the brain is to reject any new idea. So there's actually a skill needed for leaders to begin to unlock their brains, to move from a kind of a more fixed mindset to a place where they really are curious. And I remember like, you know, 20 years ago, someone said, oh, Michael, you just need to be curious. And I'm like, how do I do that? Unless people actually have the skills to understand how their mind by default prevents them from being curious. Mm. Like some people through mm. their birth and their environment, they're naturally curious and they're naturally open to ideas and they're extraordinary learners. Most of us, and I was talking about my childhood background, most of us, the vast majority are not like that. We actually need to rehabilitate ourselves to become open to learning. And when we start to go, wait a second, wow. Yeah, I yeah. do argue with people. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. And, and it's not anyone's fault. Our brain mm. is optimized to give us the fastest possible answer. Right? So we start mm. to understand the new neurophysiology of our brains and how our egos are constantly taking us out. We go, wait a second. What? There's a bigger world here that I've never been able to see before because they didn't have the skills? <sighs> I'm not convinced, actually, it's not anyone's I'm sorry. It's not any one person's fault. But I do believe certainly this side of the world, our educational system, the system, is very much at fault because it, it, it rewards children not on being creative and exploring and developing their curiosity, but on getting the answer right. 
and there's, and there's only two answers, the right answer and the wrong answer, and you're rewarded for getting it right. And that, to me, kill, it doesn't kill it. It suppresses uh, natural curiosity. So I, I think so this... <laughs> until, that, until that system of education changes and, and, the, and the veneration that we have for that system, because when people go home, the kids go home, and then their parents are, are supporting the system by, you know, have you got your homework done? And, and I would only imagine that it was like that uh, with steroids, uh, figuratively speaking, um, yeah. when your parents were academics as well. So they're, they're of, of the system. And that, that we need to, okay, we can't change the past. So now we have to unlock it. What I'm really interested in, Michael, is what you talked about is say, don't believe us, right? So what we're talking about here, as you mentioned, is that cognitive dissonance we all experience when somebody comes in and presents us the ideas and belief systems that are not ours, right? We have a different worldview, so therefore we have to reject one or the other. And what I'm interested in, because the way you presented it, it sounded really simple, which was just to de-arm, or disarm, I should say, that that internal cognitive system of rejecting automatically you say look don't believe us is it as simple as that or is there more to no. disarming no no so so th there's a whole series of 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 specific models tools that we can use to kind of pull ourselves out of the hole we're in of, of being trapped and tricked by our egos of just you know going with what our default assumptions are default beliefs are uh, so we have some of those in our book. We do some of those in our training. There's a whole, actually a whole series to unlocking deeper and deeper levels of, of what we call unlearning. Um, but this is really the essential practice. And, and like, this is, see the thing is, unless we change how we see the world, until we change how we see ourselves, these kinds of problems with the, the education system are not solvable, right? So I don't even think the education system is the problem. All we can do is work. To, I mean, everybody knows this, but no one knows how to put it into practice. You can't change anyone else. You can only change yourself. Like everyone knows that, but no. So what we actually give people is the the way to understand how they've been wasting so much effort. We just say, hey, did you notice when you try to do this with other people, it doesn't work? Did you notice how you are actually creating that problem? And so we take people to this place where they realize, wait a second, I'm the problem, but I'm the solution. And when we have that awareness. It unlocks great capability in us because then suddenly these unsolvable problems, most of us have these unsolvable problems. We tried this, we tried that, nothing's working because we haven't actually been working and dealing with, and we, you quoted this in the beginning, the root cause. And we are the root cause of so many more things than we're aware of. How do you get people to want to change? I do and I don't. I think the most important thing is my uh, recognition and honor, this very, very deep honor of the sovereignty of each human being. So while I may have desire for the world to evolve and people to evolve, I, I'm really in this place of deeply honoring each person's freedom. And through that, 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 that I mean, think of, you've seen the movie, The, the Matrix, right? Ooh. Right, Morpheus doesn't go, hey, Neo, you're the one to save humanity. He, he says, no, 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 Neo, it's your choice. Do you want to take the red pill and see the truth? Or do you want to take your blue pill and go back to your everyday ordinary reality? It's your choice. Even though he believed in his heart of hearts, he had a vision that Neo's the only one who could save humanity. He didn't try to convince him. He didn't try to sell him. He just yeah. said, look, pick what is right for you.
Mm-hmm. Right. And when we do that, that's how we build other leaders. Until we have that deep respect of the sovereignty of another human being, until we truly treat them like an adult, there's no way we can create other adults. There's no way we can inspire other people to be leaders. And that's okay. the spark that's missing. Two quick questions, because one of them is serious. <laughs> you, you talked about the red pill, blue pill with Morpheus. My, what went through my head when you said that, I was, uh, yeah, it would have also been a very short movie if you picked the blue pill. <laughs> What would that have been like? Well, <laughs> that's what, well, that's what it's like, right? I mean, yeah. we have people coming to these leadership trainings. They think, you know, they're there to help fix other people. How do I fix all my people? Because they're all broken. They realize they're Ooh. the problem and they're the solution. And some of them take the blue pill and they just use some very tactical tools and techniques they can get some limited success with. And other people go, wait a second. And they spark their evolutionary leadership journey where they realize that, there's work to be done. The most important work mm. to create the success around them is their work, how they show up, how they mm. interact. Because if they want to unlock, if they want people around them to be unlocked, they're the ones that need to unlock them. Yeah. And that requires a shift inside. That requires specific skills and patterns. Yeah. And you kind of answered my second part of the question I had, which was I can understand how when you're initially sitting down with the top leadership of an organization and they're looking at change within the organization because they're coming to you with some preconceived ideas of the type of change that they want to see. So they're almost primed and you just need to kind of let them find their own way to the the path. But now you're in front of a, a, a room full of leaders, half of whom are probably prisoners, don't want to be there, just yeah. want to be back doing their thing. And what you're telling me is that you're not there to try and convince them. You're there is to basically tell two stories. One story is the red pill, which is here's, here's what may happen if you go this way. The other one is, you know what? You've got a busy job. You're quite welcome to go back and do that. There's no pressure. You decide. That's what you're telling yeah. me. Now, but, but yeah, you're, hitting on the, what, you're, you're hitting on the core of it. You're hitting on the core of it, which yeah. is that it's making things optional. Yeah. Right. That's what choice means yeah. is making things optional, making, oh, you know what? I'm a leader. I'm excited to go on this journey. Do you want to come with me? It's optional. You don't have to. We only want the people mm. who want to look at change now. If you don't look at change, it's okay. It's totally fine. We probably don't want everyone mm. going on this program right now anyway. So to make it completely and utterly safe for people to say no and take the blue pill right now, because when we do that, it's setting them up so that when they're ready to take the red pill, it's their time. So there's this maturity and leadership about understanding there's a timing to things, understanding that it's really about building desire and the coalition of the willing, right? Mm. Um, And just to be clear, top leadership I talk to in companies, most of them don't. Most of them are really in this traditional business mindset and how do we make things better and how do we like fix our people? And I'm going like, well, wait a second. What's the result you want? What's the outcome you want? And then I start pacing, well, did you know that it's really about creating engaged, motivated people? And if we just mandate everyone go through this stuff, that's actually creating more disengagement. Isn't that the opposite of what you want? And they're like, oh, oh, holy smokes, that is the opposite. So I don't convince people. I don't try. I just say, well, did you notice if you do it this way, this is how it's going to turn out? And people have already had their experience. 
They've already had their experience that if they go through door A, it's going to end up in not so good. So when I say, well, maybe do you want to try door B? Here's why it might work. And they're like, oh, well, door A doesn't work. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll try door B. Can you walk me through how that could work? And they have to take a step into the unknown. There's no other way because, or they maybe had some small experience of, oh, yeah, I did that in some other context. It worked. So we help them. We don't try to convince them. We help them connect to their own data, their own experience of what's worked and what hasn't. And by repatterning this again and again, there, this clarity comes in. There's, a, there's a mo- emergence comes in. Wait a second. Yeah, the way I've been doing it isn't working. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Without giving away any confidences, could you share with me a, an example of a profound experience that somebody would have gone through, that sort of awakening moment that they would have had and, and, and how it might have affected them? Mm. Yeah, a great question. Yeah, so probably the, the most... I'll create an aggregate story. Um, the most consistent feedback for the people who like truly get it is they say, wait a second, this isn't just about the workplace. This is about me and my relationship with my partner. This is about me and my relationship with my kids. This is how I show up with my friends. You're not actually just giving me the recipe for how to be successful at work. You're giving me the recipe for how to be successful in my life. And I've gotten such a profound sense of peace. I didn't realize how much I was struggling and fighting against this, you know, traditional business as usual. Now I'm not fighting it anymore. Now I'm at peace with, oh, we're in a traditional organization. Oh, it's very oppressed of the people. Oh, leaders making very poor decisions. Oh, this is very interesting. But they're coming from this place where they're at peace and when they're at peace, then, they, then solutions emerge. What can I do to help these people, this system, where it is right now? Because they're, they can see the reality, and they're not fighting with it. They're not struggling with their peace. So this, this inner sense of peace that they get unlocks so much power. Not just that. They feel better every day. They're now suddenly starting to be, instead of being taken out by the system and disengaged and unmotivated, now they're showing up every day motivated. Oh, Things are really broken here, but, but what can I do? How can I change? And so this is what we've created, which is this extraordinary, extraordinary technology of how every individual, no matter what their role, can create local change, local shift in culture, local shift in their leadership to start evolving the whole system. So there's Ooh. nothing what we're saying ever in anything I've been talking about here, which is waiting for somebody else to change first. Mm. What, what I took from that, when, when you said it's when people have this realization, this is for my relationships, this is for my life, is the bit where they realize that this, it's actually about them. It's not about the company and it's not about others. It's not about learning a technique which, by which they can apply to others. They've really, they've, they've, once, I think once the penny drops that it's about them, then it becomes easy for them to take it and look into other aspects of their lives and see, oh, if if this changes, then this changes, and this changes, and that changes too, by by default, which I could imagine is a pretty profound experience for people. Yeah, it's this realization: it's not about what I do. Yeah, it's about who I am. Yeah, 
the, the bit that I don't have yet, Michael, maybe you want to talk about the book that in, in, in the context of this question, which is around the, it's probably a more granular level, which is, what is it that they're realizing about themselves? Is it, is it agency? Is it uh, how they interact with others? I, I, that, that's what I'm, I, I still yeah, don't quite yeah, got have it, got it, when they're having it. these discoveries. Yep. Yeah, sure. So, so in the book, we actually go through a full deconstruction of multiple mm. layers of reality how we see reality, how we perceive leadership, how we think about the use of power and understand the paradox of power, how we understand change within organizations, how we understand how people are being treated, how we understand results and what good results are or not. So we actually take people through really a, a traditional pattern and an evolutionary pattern and give them really concrete anchor points of like, did you know when you do it this way? In the traditional way, you create a lot of damage, and here's why. Do you know when you there's other way? This is what's related to success, and here are the case studies, here's the data, here's the thing. So we take people through pattern after pattern of how they're showing up, how their organizations function now, how they interact and do things that's creating so much damage. So it's creating a, a way for them to look at so many different dimensions of how they're functioning, how they're interacting. Because what we've realized, it's not just doing. It's not just a skill. It's not just knowledge. It's a shift in our, our consciousness, our mindset, who, how we see ourselves. right? Because we're, we all have this, this ultimately, we all have this egoic structure, this structure called an ego, which is constantly taking us out. So starting to be aware of how is our ego taking us out? How is our default assumptions, our conditioning of this is good business, actually limiting performance. I want to know more about this. Maybe you could just, just using a single example and take it down the layers in the traditional sense as, as per normal patterns and then the, where the paradigm shift and how it might change. And then we'll say, you know, people want to know more, buy the book. But to kind of give us in a sense of how the how it unfolds in both streams, the traditional and the, the, the new form? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a great question. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. So, so there's so really, we can put all knowledge into a couple of different categories. There are things that are traps or beliefs that are damaging, that are just really unhelpful. There are ones that are kind of a good starting place but in, and insufficient. And then there's things that will take us the distance, will help us create... Um, these, this evolution of these high-performing organizations. So I'll take one that's a halfway pattern. Let's look at something called servant leadership. Servant leadership is a very beautiful concept. It's now 50 years old. It's time to retire it. It cannot go the distance. Because what we looked at when we looked at, well, what is high-performance leadership? There's some very beautiful characteristics, but we need to evolve servant leadership to the next thing. It's what we call evolutionary leadership. And the most important characteristic, what we've been talking about here, which is, an evolutionary leader is somebody who makes the choice to evolve themselves and learn the capabilities needed to evolve an organizational system. So a lot of leaders we see in traditional organizations, they have not made this choice. They are not evolving themselves, and they do not know the tools to evolve the organizational system. So without that, like someone could be a very beautiful servant leader. They grew up in a nice environment. They're a really nice person. They treat their people well. Fantastic. But are they evolving? Unless they're evolving, they're not going to be able to take the people from where they are to like a greater future, a more like a better work environment, right? So we, all of us 
have a cap in our leadership, right? So it's how do we move from where we are now to a more evolved place and be aware that we're on our journey. Like the moment we think we've got it, I've got it as a leader. You know, I made it. That's the moment we're doomed because we're not learning, we're not growing. So that's one pattern to just kind of give you something to, to understand Ooh. what is the contrast. So I'm, I'm thinking, and, and I'm using the challenger sale as an example of an analog here, which they describe the idea of the five different sales personalities. There's the, the uh, lone wolf, there's the challenger, there's the relationship. Build. Yeah, you, you, get, you know, understand. Yeah, I'm talking about the challenger. We're talking about what do you do to be a challenger is you got to really listen. You got to yeah, really but, but, care. But so here's the thing. Gotta... This, is, this is where I see, to me, there's a deficiency in it, is that they, that they, they seem to portray it as there's one truth, that, that the best people are challengers without saying, and, and I don't think they say it anywhere in the book that says, actually, you know what, being a challenger is good. But I've also got to build relationships. I've also been able to op to operate uh, independently. I've also, right, and uh, I've also to be a problem solver. It's not one or the other. And I wonder when you talked about servant leadership, is the the I guess the concept of servant leadership was really just a paradigm shift over traditional models of the leader being the boss of everything. That can servant leadership coexist? with evolutionary leadership where you're evolving beyond it. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking question. about an evolution. Yeah, so so, so actually, you've actually, let's talk about the, the sales models, the personality types. What we've seen is that we're, the highest performance comes from a transcendence of all models. And when, when we transcend them, we actually integrate them. So I think you're mm. absolutely on it. And so I, I think what, what's going on with the, the, the challenger model, <clears throat> and the, it, it, there's actually a deeper, deeper layer of truth that what we would say is happening. And um, I don't know if you want me, I can go into this a bit. I can share a model with you that Please, yeah. kind of takes us to yeah. a deeper layer. I think layer. it's one that a lot of people will understand too. So Yeah, okay. So, so uh, in our book, there's a, a, a model we share that's uh, based on a Buddhist concept called the four karmas, right? And it's a very simple idea. So if you want to achieve anything with somebody, the first step is peace. They, they know you're not going to harm them, right? So if you think about it, that's how do I create a healthy relationship with a person, right? So you could, you could map it in that way if you wanted to. But it means that really you're not trying to sell them anything. You're trying to make them do anything that's not good for them. There's no anything in your being that's going to trigger them. Like so now if you've got fear... You know, you got to make the sale or something like that. That's going to blow away peace. You're going to blow yourself up before you even start it. That's the first step. I, I, it's, it's the old one. I mean no harm to your planet. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So if we don't have that, how can we achieve anything with somebody, right? Mm. Or with an organizational like system, that. right? So, so peace is the first step. We're not going to do anything to harm you. The second step is enrich. Enrich, which if you're dealing with the person, is you give them what they need. You give them money, you mm. give them education, you give them skills, whatever they need. But it's what they want, not what I want. There's no me. It's just about them, right? You know, and this is what a sales, good salesperson says, how can I help you be successful? It's not about my product or what I want to sell. It's just like, what is your challenge? How can I help you be successful? It's not about me. It's mm. about you. It's about your challenge, mm. your situation, your goal, your desire. So in the first two karmas, peace and enrich, there's nothing about what I want. 
there's zero of my ego in that situation, which is the evolution required because most of us are so caught up in our story, our wants, our blah, 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 our narrative. Then we get to the third karma, which is energize. And this is where, you know, we get that Morpheus moment of, well, Morpheus is clearly energizing Neo to, to take the, you know, inviting him, but in a very gentle way, not pushy, not trying to control, not trying to mandate, not trying to sell, not trying to blah, 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 right? It's just very, you know, pure and innocent. It's like, well, I'm here to support you in what you want. And do you want to consider this? Here's an option, right? And that's, you know, what if you think about what's happening to actually create not a win for me, but a win for both of us. So I'm going to tie in like a lot of concepts here, like to move from me thinking of what oh, I need for my success to we thinking, what do we need oh. to do to be both mutually successful, which is this shift of local optimization for myself and my organization to how do we win collectively, which we see in more evolved organizational systems. They stop trying to think about how do I just win over my part- business partner, but how do we win together? How do we win as society? And so that's the third karma. The fourth karma is, and sometimes we need to go to this, and we, if we do it in a very evolved way, it's destroy. And sometimes we need to have, a, you know, the forest fire to have new growth. We need to actually, you know, have something really, de- you know, eliminated, or destroyed, a belief or whatever that's blocking success in order for new, something new to flourish. But when we approach it in a very evolved way, a very conscious way, and understand that we're only going to go to destruction when needed, only for the best interests of everyone involved, then it's a very different kind of uh, use of, of power, very different than we see in most organizations. So let me just get this peace. First of all, we, you know, there, there's no harm, non-threatening. There's enrich, which is, it's about with, winning the U game. What do they want? What's, what's in it for them? Uh, energize and destroy. And I'm, and I'm actually, as, as you go through that, and, and I love it, it's, 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 it's really easy to consume. Um, I'm also thinking some stuff, I remember David Sander talked about burning your bridges. And, and, and it's actually, it's quite interesting because in Sander, they talk about the upfront, con- the bonding and rapport upfront contract, which is really peace. It's creating that environment where there's, it's, there's nothing hidden, there's no gotchas, it's, it's fine. And, and you have the ultimate, you're in control. And then the enriches the, to me, and I'm, I'm just doing this for people who might be familiar with Sander to kind of make some parallels, because I think it's wonderful, is the, the enriches, they would know is, and again, it's part of the upfront contract, is what do you want to get out of this? And then it's, it's, and, and, and then it's digging deeper to find out what do they really want? What's, what's the underlying impact of, of, of any change? And I guess the, the end energizes a lot about potency and about individual responsibility well, well um, yeah, energize is really yeah energize is really about us like how do we create a win now for both of us like now i understand your world yeah. how do we create a win yes. so starting to energize a co-creation like, yeah. for a mutual win yeah it's it's that vision as well well it's the vision i guess creates a sense of energy in it as, as well uh um and, and the burn your bridges when i when i heard that first it was a sense of oh because you know, don't burn your bridges. We all grew up with that one. But it wasn't that. It was a sense of the, the things we rely on, the things that give us comfort 
to not 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 rely on those, to, to kind of burn those as an element of, there are always things that we need. In order to move on, we have to give up. And that, yeah, is there's that a letting what you're talking about when you say destroy? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then if we tie it back to unlearning we were talking about earlier, we're letting go of our beliefs, which we, yes. we didn't choose. We just ended up with a whole bunch of beliefs that may not be serving us. That must be something that people struggle with. And I wonder, are you conscious of it when you're in a room with people and you can see them in those moments where they've got two incompatible belief systems, their, their initial worldview, and now they're processing something else. Sure. And it's like this chasm that's pulling them in two different directions. And they have to jump or, or stay. They, they, no, they, they, no, 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 no. That, that's the whole point. No, they don't. That's the whole beauty. That's, the, that's their technology. There's a lot of details to this, but I'll give you the, the soundbite here, which is we tell them... The, the, the test, there's a quote um, uh, from Fitzgerald, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind and still retain the ability to function. So we said, look, you're all really intelligent. So yeah. your job is not to believe us, not to reject what we say, but to keep both ideas in mind at the same time. And your mind's going to try to get you to make a snap decision to get you the fastest Ooh. possible answer, not the answer that's correct or will support your long-term success. So just wait Ooh. Wait to hear what other people have to say. Wait to see how this ties in with other learning modules. Even leave this open after the class ends. When we wait, it gives us the ability to triangulate the actual correct answer. This, this mm -hmm. desire, so they start becoming aware, the desire to get to an answer is the sabotage pattern of the suboptimization of the brain. Like it's not actually good for them. Ooh. So they go, oh, wait a second. I, I'm trying to get an answer here. So Ooh. what we Ooh. do is we actually give them a very powerful technology. It's called chocolate. Uh, and what chocolate does is it, when we're under stress, it, it relieves that, right? It also gives sugar to our brain to allow it to function and so on. So we say, look, you're going to go into shock. You're going to have conflict. This is normal. So we start pacing them through the reality of what they're going to experience, these kind of almost like withdrawal symptoms from giving up this addiction to a, an idea that's no longer serving them. Do so you give them chocolate as a reward, is it, or is it... Not as a reward. No, we say you're going to go into shock. When you go into shock, you're having yeah. a really hard time. You're feeling mm. a lot of internal conflict or your mm. brain feels like it's melting. Mm. Just take some chocolate. Mm. And people but, but, go like, oh my gosh, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the lifesaver. Yeah, but the shock, <laughs> I can't believe it. The shock is the tension with the, the, the two incompatible. Now, what I've understood you're saying is that, that they don't have to jump in the moment. In fact, you're giving them permission to just stay with it and process it over time. Mm -hmm. But eventually, I would imagine that they're going to have to choose one way or the other, but they'll do so because they've integrated their own experiences and their own life situation into all of that before they pick one way or the other. Would that be fair? Yes. And like you said, you want to leave people with questions. What we see is people go, wait a second, I know that door A does not work and it creates a lot of yeah. damage. And door B, yeah. I get some sense that it might work, but I don't have any experiences to back it up and I'm terrified to try it out. And, yeah. and like, really, and this, so, but here's the deal. If we're not ready to step into the unknown, how can we ever discover anything new?
then we're just going to stay in the same old, same old. And this is what we say. Look, if you're happy with your current level of success, you're happy with your current level of performance, if everything's just fine, please don't make any changes. We only want, this is only for people who want to create the extraordinary. This is only for people who want to be very successful. If that's not your, it's not in your, your system, please don't do any of this stuff. It's not for you. Mm. It's like the blue pill, right? Yeah. <laughs> the weirdest stuff goes through my head when I'm listening to this. This is fascinating. I, I'm absolutely loving this, Michael. And I'm just conscious we're just up on time as well. I could talk all day to you about this. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, you guys, you know what a nappy is? It's like a diaper. Okay. All right. Got Same it. thing, right? So yeah. we, we would call it a, a, a nappy. And there's a song. <laughs> you sing it to kids and you go, if you're happy in your nappy, clap your hands. Right? Uh, <laughs> it's when the nappy needs to get changed, right? No, mommy. No, daddy. And uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit like that is that we all have shit in our lives. And what you're saying is, oh, if you're happy and you're nappy, like, that's okay. That's fine. If, if, you, if, you, if you want, if you want to, to move on from this, there's, there's another path. And, and what you're giving people is the process and the tools to go from one to the other. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually like a very sophisticated framework. We call it the SHIFT 314 Evolutionary Leadership Framework, or the SELF. Because uh, it turns out the only way to evolve your organization is when the self evolves, when we evolve ourselves. So when we collectively evolve how we're showing up on our teams and organizations and our family systems, we're going to get a completely different result. And you know, the good news is that it works at any level of organization, and it starts with each of us, that each of us becomes the agent of change. There's no waiting for anybody else. The very first thing I'm going to do when I finish this call, Michael, is get the book. Because I, ha I haven't read it, to, to my shame. Um, uh, literally back from holidays, my first day back today, and uh, I shut down for a while. But um, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and, and I know I need to, to learn a lot more. Can you just yeah. for people well, listening to this, driving along, what's the name of your book? It's Leading Beyond Change: A Practical Guide Leading to Business Agility. Yeah, and it's available in audiobook. And just a just a quick tip: if you are getting the audiobook, there's a visual companion because it's loaded with lots of illustrations that illustrate and highlight this and bring this work to life in extraordinary ways. And for those of you who really want to change, you can also download a free workbook, which will take you through a series of questions that will support not just learning some knowledge by reading the book, but actually help you create the shift that you want in your leadership now. I, I, I will put a link to that as well in the show notes, but also on, on the video on LinkedIn. I'll make sure there's a link and I'll insert a, a, a picture into the video itself as well. Uh, it, sounds, it sounds really fascinating. It really it does because it's the, I think it's the thing that defines our age. I think we're all looking for something that gives us control, I guess. And, and that's, to me, I, I don't know, we, we didn't speak about it. The whole idea of the red pill, blue pill, at the end of the day, is about control. Even if I choose blue, I'm in control of that choice, but I'm making mm -hmm. it consciously now rather than being here unconscious. Yeah, brilliant. And that's, brilliant. that's good. And, and it allows me to come back to it in the future if I want to as well. Maybe I'm not ready or there's something going on in my life and I'm not ready. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. I remember years ago, just very, very quick story for people who are kind of... They're, 
you know, I, I always think it's funny with these things where a change comes into place. There's people who've been through it and are your cheerleaders. There's people who, they're just not ready. And there's people kind of looking at it, you know, and they're looking for answers. And it was a few years ago, there was a, a couple of uh, members of the, the, the Mormons came to our front door. And I was working from home, it's maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I'd, I'd injured my foot, so I was hobbling around the house with a crutch. And so my wife went to answer the door, and she spoke to them, you know, very politely, a couple, of, a few minutes, entertained them, chatted to them. But, you know, ultimately, after five minutes, I saw them leave and head across the road to another house. And I remember thinking, these guys, they actually pay good money to go on the missions, right? They save up. They, they'll do two or three jobs sometimes, and they'll pay to go on the missions. And I've had a couple of them on the podcast, and we've talked about it briefly. And... I, I was fascinated by how they take rejection. That was the thing that I wanted. I really wanted to talk to him about. So I, I, I jumped up out of my seat and hobbled with the, the out the front door, and I held up the crutch. Hey, guys, guys! And they looked around and they went white because they saw me with this stick up in the air, shaking at them. And I went over to them, and uh, I remember asking, cut a long story short. I said, "Look, guys, I'm fascinated how you do this. That you voluntarily go for two years." and you will call from door to door getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And right now you're in a middle class area and it's probably mostly polite, but I'm sure there's some areas you go into and it's not so polite. How do you do it? How do you, how do you manage that rejection? And I'll never forget the guy's answer. He said, it's not us, he says, they're just not ready yet. And I think that's true for people when it comes to change is that maybe now is not the time for whatever reason, but it could be six months' time, six years' time, who knows? And uh, if they're listening to this, they should go pick your book up because that'll start them on the journey. That's what I've taken from it. Yeah, th thank you so much. It's been uh, really uh, a delightful conversation. Uh, I never know where these things are going, so it's, it's, it's really just beautiful that uh, we're able to explore this topic together. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Michael, and I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you.